You are now listening to the May 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Well, welcome to another edition of Walking Our Talk. And this is Alan Heller, and Polly's here too. Hello. <laughs> and we're going to talk about something a little more serious today, trials, how trials affect our marriage. And when we say our vows, traditional vows say, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, till death do us part. And we've seen, especially as we've gotten older, we see a lot of tragedy and hurts and pains that people go through. There are external ones, Polly, and then there are also internal ones. We're going to start out with external things that come on us. could be sickness or an accident or something happens externally to us that we can't control. And a lot of times that's part of the issue that puts strain on our marriage. We can't control it. For instance, I know a couple where they have a Down syndrome baby uh, or child that it causes them to, their whole life basically has to revolve around how, you know, they just can't go out and do something. They have to deal with this issue that's always there. And I think the ones that are chronic are the hardest to deal with. And um, so in our case, we've had some external issues happened to us. I remember when before we were even uh, married, uh, I had a dating relationship and uh, we were both new believer or I was a new believer and uh, she was younger than me. I was older. I was in college, she in high school. So there were some real differences there and the differences aren't the issue, but it came to a point where in my dating relationship with this person, we got to the point where we wanted to commit to engagement, and we got engaged, and that was a big deal. But then we started fighting with each other, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this can't be you, God, uh, because uh, the conflict – I mean, we all have conflict, but this got to the point where it's destroying the relationship. And finally, to make a long story short, we did break off the relationship. But that was the first major trial that I had in my Christian life, and I remember going around the campus and people going who knew me, and they knew how excited and, you know, how very positive I was because of just coming to know the Lord and all that, and they're going, you don't look too good. <laughs> and uh, no kidding, I, I just had a major catastrophe in my life, and for the first time in my Christian life, I had to deal with something external trial that I had to deal with and see you know, is God really the person that I can trust? Uh, because it, it just was so difficult. 
And in our marriage, early in our marriage, I developed a swollen optic nerve in my eye. And I was a gymnast, and we were on this gymnastic team with Athletes in Action where we did ministry and shared the gospel with kids in high schools and that sort of thing. And then for a year, I was told I cannot work out because I had this swollen optic nerve, and they didn't know the normal cause of this is a tumor in the brain or a uh, or MS. And they wanted, at that time, there were only three CAT scans in the whole United States. That's how far back it was. There was one in New York, one in Denver, and one in California. And we went with Campus Crusade. We had this summer training, and we went out there, and I did get a CAT scan. But I remember thinking to myself, Paulie, that I'm really going to have to deal with if there's a tumor in my brain and if it's terminal – do I really believe this stuff? You know, it was testing my belief in God, but it also ended up being a test for us because that next year I, they found out I did have a brain, which I thought you might be interested yeah, we in. Yeah, proof. Yes, and, but I did not have a tumor. I went through a year of going to an ophthalmologist. It was getting worse and worse. We actually, I, the, the place that it stopped was when I, reconciled with my authority. I was having problems with him, and we reconciled, and then I had the elders of our church pray over it, and then it was like a perfect bell curve, just as bad as it was getting, and they were about to send me to Mayo Clinic. We were in Chicago at the time, and they just couldn't find an answer. They knew what it was. They didn't know why my eyesight was continuing to go downhill. But after that reconciliation and after the prayer um, God uh, stopped the swelling of the optic nerve, and the eyesight was getting better. And for six months, it, it finally got better. But in between that time, at the beginning of that, I was on steroids, and I broke a kitchen table, which my wife you was not— You were not easy to live with. Yes, I was a porcupine supreme. Mm-hmm. So we had to deal with that, and we had to cling to, I think, our friends, the Lord— Uh, We were regular attenders of church, so we had a close-knit community. And I think those things have served us well. Well, there was a lot of uncertainty in that time as well. And and once your eye did heal and you were given the go-ahead to go back into the gym. Oh, yes, I remember that. You didn't want to. I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) I mean, you work out six days a week, three to four hours a day for all your life from fifth or sixth grade on. And then you're out for a year, and the hill was just too big for me to come back. And uh, I decided that I would quit. Well, yeah, we did uh, talk to one of our pastors who suggested that maybe this was God's way of leading you in a different direction, that you didn't have to be a gymnast all your life. And that was a revelation to me. So, you know, getting counsel from somebody, also praying. I mean, I fasted and prayed during that time. And just keeping a close vertical relationship as well as trying to talk it out with you. But sometimes that would get a little bit difficult. But see, here's the thing. I really like my security. And I grew up in the same house <laughs> in a small town until I was 12 years old. And then, and then we moved about a mile away <laughs> it just to a different house. We stayed in the same town. I had all the same friends. And so 
I like my security. I like my stability. I like things to be predictable and the same. And this was pushing a lot of insecurity buttons. And as we told you in the past that Polly isn't real aware of what she's feeling. She's not a feeler. She's a thinker. So she's just thinking, what is Alan going to do for a job? And how are we going to make life work? Right, right. So that's that puts a lot of stress on the relationship. And if you were going to go through some kind of a, a job change, that would also affect our finances. That You know, there, there were so many of my um, insecurities coming out during that time. Um, well, and that's what trials or, or these uh, external forces do to us. It, it, it magnifies whatever the issues are that we have. It's going to magnify it. I mean, I have people that say, you know, we're going to have kids so that we can be more, <laughs> more united. And I'm thinking... <laughs> You're going to have kids, man, and they are going to be a big responsibility, and you have to be less selfish than you've ever been in your life. But here's one of the things that did come out of that time is that as we prayed about it and got down on our knees together, we saw God lead us. Mm. We saw him. uh, First of all, he brought the healing into your body, healed up that optic nerve, Then he brought a wise counselor who we trusted into our lives who gave you some wise counsel about looking at the situation. Yeah, looking at it a different way. And like Mm -hmm. life isn't crashing down. This is God's opportunity to bring change. So look at it as a positive side of God leading you possibly someplace else. Right. So getting wise counsel is really helpful when you're going through big trials and external pressures in your marriage. And we suggest you have a mentor couple, if you possibly can, somebody that's maybe 10 years older, and you look at them and you say, that's the kind of people I want to hang out with and be a part of. And um, I remember Colonel McNair uh, was a colonel that retired colonel that was speaking for um, Christian businessmen, and he invited me to come with him one time. And just in our drive from our suburb in Chicago to where he was speaking, he gave me a, a little model that really helped me make a decision. And that was, he said, on the left side of the page, list all the things that you believe you need for this job. And List, you know, like I wanted to be uh, accessible to my family, and so I wanted to be close to my work, and I wanted so just we listed the criteria of this would be my ideal job, and then on the top, so that's down the left side of the paper, and then on the top you would put uh, a place and a column for, you know, it could be for me it was you know be a pastor, go to seminary, and then he said. Uh, if you have three or four or five different opportunities, then on the last one, put a question mark because God may want to do something that you didn't even think of. And in our case, that's exactly what happened. We, I started searching for what my next step was, and I ended up in something that I didn't expect to be in, and that was because we left room for God to speak and cause circumstances to come into alignment for me to be in a place where we've been 37 years now. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, sometimes in a marriage, you go through a trial like that, and it just blows things apart. Mm-hmm. It's very easy uh, to allow all that uncertainty and all the uh, fear and anxiety to create a barrier between the two of you. And certainly, I I tend to withdraw from anything. Right. Just when I want you to scary. come toward me, you're moving away. And then that touches my insecurity button. But the thing is, when, what we've talked about before is the friendship, the comradeship, and the commitment helped to keep us realizing in our relationship, there are no back doors. So that commitment, even though we're going bananas in our emotions and having conflict, but having uh, the commitment that, hey, we're going to get through this together and also having friends and community. We always have been in a small group. I've always been in a men's group. Paulie's always had some kind of women around her. Those people are helping and encouraging us to stay the course. But what good is it to have those friends and that community around you if you're not open and honest with them about what you are really going through. Mm. You have to be able to say, look, I am really struggling with this. Please pray for me honestly because this is a scary time and and all my weaknesses are coming out. Um, I... Or maybe I have made a big mistake here. Maybe I invested money where I shouldn't have. Or maybe I have um, mishandled funds. Or maybe I completely misused my time. Or maybe I even allowed myself to get involved in a relationship that wasn't healthy for us. If I'm not honest with those closest to me about this, then I can't receive the help and support that I need. Right. So you can only be as accountable as you're willing to be open with people that you can be honest. And you can't do this with everybody. You really need to keep the circle small. You don't need to get up in front of the whole church. (laughs) So we've seen couples who have had, like there was a couple, a pastor and his wife who we knew uh, from afar who had a child that was uh, mentally uh, disabled and just, Um, caused their marriage to just blow apart and it was just too overwhelming. The the pain and the agony, there wasn't enough resource for them to even deal with it. And what's interesting is 10 or 15 years later, after this whole thing blew over, they both were remarried and both are best friends now and even the couples are able to get together and they they were Christian couples. And, you know, I don't know where to put that in my theology, but God is a God of second and third chances, and uh, he understands our mistakes, and he wants us to learn how to forgive and love one another in a way that we can't mend those fences. But there are other couples that we know that have just simply blown apart and started a new life because they just couldn't weather the storm. Well, we have had friends who have lost children very suddenly uh, through automobile accidents, drowning, uh, cancer. And we ourselves lost our 32-year-old son to colorectal cancer. And that kind of loss 
can blow your marriage apart and can cause so much separation if you if you handle your grief differently, if you handle the stress of it differently. Well, and normally in a marriage, because you are usually opposites, you are going to handle it differently. The question is, how do you handle it? Right. And one of the things that happened with us when our son had cancer, and we he was diagnosed with cancer and lived for 10 months before he died, he was in so much pain, and he was um, not—he was not like your typical, uh, I, or the, at least the way a sick person is portrayed, lying in bed and like, oh, no, he wanted thank to go play so paintball. He wanted to go drive places. Oh. He's going to live all of his <laughs> life in the ten months. I mean, and we didn't know it was ten months. We were told that most people who get this kind of cancer die within a year. So. But when you're on the other side of it, you don't know what's going to happen. And he didn't. And so he wanted to just live life to the full as best he could in the pain and the, you know, tough stuff right. that he was going through. And he through. was a child who um, caused triangulation in our marriage to begin with. He had well, he wanted, he wanted to marry you. And I said, <laughs> she's already married. He wanted you to himself, and I just said, you got to find somebody else uh, when he was 31 years old. He did have a way of pitting us against each other. And so the fact that our marriage survived that I think is a testament to how strong it was to begin with. And what were were the things that, that allowed it to be strong from your perspective? I, having that undergirding commitment, for one thing, that we've been talking about all the way through here, that we have a covenant marriage that will not be broken, that we both rely on God. From the very beginning of our marriage, we have gotten on our knees together to pray about things. And when we're praying together, we have to be honest with the Lord. We're not just praying God fix him or fix her or, oh, bless everybody. Thank you for this food. <laughs> um, we we get raw and we get right down to what's so going on So there's the relationship with, the with God. And then what about our home group that helped us stay the course in the midst of that? Right, right. We, we had good friends that were there for us. Oh, yeah, because not only did we lose our son during that time, but it was during a terrible financial downturn in the economy, and we lost our... uh, House, we lost your mom, we also lost... uh, a dog. Uh, it seemed like everywhere we went, we were losing. Right. We went through such a season of loss that we ended up needing to cling to each other in order to walk through it. But we also got competent counselors who were both professional as well as non-professional who gave us good input because there were times where I was just off the rails and needed to be reined in. And there were times where you were withdrawing and we needed some objective help. And so what we're telling you is every marriage is going to go through conflict and trials. And what James 1, 2 through 4 says, consider it all joy 
my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials and many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it liberally. So we need to go to God as we deal with the trials. And we also need friends that stick closer than a brother. And so trials will come. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so if you're going through some trials right now and hurts and pains, reach out. Reach out to your church friends who are close, who love you no matter what. Reach out to your pastor. Reach out to a counselor who really gives biblical counsel. And I think you'll find that you can make it through. And also reach out to God and hit your knees and call, cry out to him. And he says, if you seek me with my whole heart, you will find me. So this is Alan and Pauly Heller signing off from Walk and Talk at Walking Our Talk. And you can get more information at our website, walkandtalk.org. And we'd love to talk to you if you want to email me, alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk.org. We'll see you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Innocent Sufferer. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, this morning, we're going to find that Peter gives us great hope, a unique hope, Christian hope, a hope that is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, our big idea is this. It is that the fear of our risen King Jesus makes us gospel brave before earthly fears. Well, the first point is this. First thing we see, verses 13 to 14, is that blessed people suffer. Doesn't sound much like the prosperity gospel, does it? Well, verses 13 to 14 really are going to set the stage for how Christians ought to think about suffering generally. Now, he's going to get specific in verse 15, but here he's just giving us some general thoughts. And he says this. Uh, Notice what he says, verses 13 to 14. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. You'll notice that Peter asks a very important question. He says, Who can harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Now, I've wrestled with this text all week, but I think that what Peter's saying is that Christians who obey the law don't typically get hurt for obedience. You don't usually get pulled over for speeding if you don't speed, right? If you're driving the the limit. Like that's just kind of the nature of the way that this world typically works. In fact, God established government for our good. We've already seen that just a few moments ago in 1 Peter 3, further up in the book. That's the way that the world tends to work. Now, I think that this also tells us that the pressure here is more social than political. Because notice, he doesn't say, everybody's a Christian and everybody's attacking us right now. That's not the way that he describes it. Instead, what he says is, sometimes you will suffer. 
Now, we also need to recognize up front, sometimes we can bring suffering on ourselves through our our sins or our unwise decisions. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, what Peter clearly is isolating is a very unique case, a specialized case. He's talking about the harms and dangers that can terrorize those who are actually zealous for doing good. Those who are in the process of seeking to be faithful to Christ. He's speaking to them. And that means the person who is earnestly committed to the side of good and not evil. That person. So if you're suffering harm while seeking good, you know what it feels like to live in a world without oxygen. You've probably sensed that before, where you feel like the breath has been knocked out of you, and you have no idea if the world will ever have a breath of oxygen for you again. You know that feeling, like when you get fired without just cause. But it's when you, in your own mind and heart, begin to to wrestle over that word and begin to question whether or not God is truly for you. That happens when suffering hits, hits you. And that's why we need to read our Bibles carefully, so that we don't read a verse like this and rip it out of its context And imagine in our minds that good people don't get hurt. That's just not the reality of the world around us. See, godly people, zealous for good, can be harmed. And God's not just using your suffering to force you. And sometimes I think that when sin hits us or when bad things hit us, like there's some kind of thing that I've done wrong that I didn't even know was wrong. And and like now he's against me. Well, catch this. I think when we suffer, we ought to see if whether or not we are sinning against God and need to repent of that. But so often, if it's not clear to us that we've sinned against God and and things are hard, what it really means is not that we have performed some kind of, you know, hidden sin that God is looking for us like a game to find. He's not playing games with our lives. It actually just happens to be that we live in a broken world. And it testifies to the fact that we need Jesus to come back and fix things, not just someday, but now. There's an urgency that suffering creates in our souls, an urgency to see Christ's face more clearly, an urgency for Jesus to come back and set things right in a world that we can come so comfortable and complacent in. See, I think that's why verse 14 is so clarifying and important. If you read 13, read 14. In fact, I would read the whole book of 1 Peter up to 13 and then 14 and then on to understand what Peter is saying. But it's there that we find that there are innocent sufferers who look like Jesus, okay? Imperfectly, but truly in the sense that they are innocent sufferers. And he says there, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I take righteousness sake to actually speak of living for Christ as Lord, okay? So if you're living for righteousness sake, I believe this is a picture of what it looks to follow Jesus faithfully, But notice that he also says that you can be both blessed and suffer at the same time. Two words that seem to be kind of opposite. And yet here he just places right together as a coherent reality that is happening simultaneously. Now, as we look at this, I know they sound like anonyms or or opposites. But I'd also have to say that it's not just a word that looks on paper like opposite. It's something that Really, you feel like it's opposite, right? And your experience is that it's opposite. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I've been on Facebook more than like ever recently, like, which is like not at all. That's the past. Now it's like sometimes. And, and sometimes I get annoyed and so I stop. But when I'm looking at Facebook, one thing I've learned, uh, really fascinating, I never see anybody taking selfies of themselves at either like the DMV or like at the medical clinic with their kid. And then, you know, putting something like hashtag the blessed life, right? 
Like, man, I'm suffering it up, feeling especially blessed today. Like, I just, that's not my natural reaction, and that's not the testimony of Facebook. But what I do know is, is that blessed is a word that that seems to seem even more awkward next to suffering when you think about what it means. It's a word that means a state of happiness for humans when they are blessed. See, blessed is actually, in this text, just a single adjective. It looks like a sentence you will be blessed, but it's actually just an adjective that just ends with blessed. It doesn't really describe what it means by that. So we have to think a little bit about what does it mean here to be blessed? It could mean that you will be blessed in the future. That's one possibility. Or it could mean that you're like, you're just blessed. Like now, like just now, or maybe now and forever. He doesn't really clarify, but I think that it might be clearer than we think. See, I think that it's actually both. I think that here blessed is both present and future because that's how Jesus used it. as an already not yet reality of enjoying a blessed status and looking forward to a blessed future. Kind of like eternal life that begins with salvation and points far into the future. See, this word blessed, when I read it and when we read it as Christians and when his audience would have read it, I believe would have been transported back to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Peter would have heard Jesus say these words, and listen in close. After saying, blessed, blessed are these different kinds of people, or people that are this way, he says this in verses 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for, catch this, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus says those who suffer for righteousness' sake are blessed because they identify with King Jesus and his kingdom. And they rejoice. They are happy in their suffering because it reveals that their future reward in heaven is great. Jesus says that we are blessed and we will be blessed. That's what he says. I think that's what Peter is getting at. See, faithfulness amidst suffering is a work of God. Did you catch that? Your faithfulness as you suffer, one of the points of the blessing and the pictures of the blessings and the evidence of God's blessing is that you are faithful and your faithfulness is God's work in you. It demonstrates that God himself will finish the work that he started with us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Friends, that's a blessed existence and identity. We call this perseverance of the saints. There's a picture of the grace of God and our persevering through suffering. We persevere because God preserves us. Isn't that good news? That we are not resting on our own strength to spiritually hold ourselves up to the end. And those moments when we feel like we're white knuckling it and we can't do it ourselves anymore. It is God himself that is holding us. And it's because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to that very end. Only God's grace enables us to say... With David in Psalms 56, 4, and God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Or Paul in Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? So our ultimate identification with Christ is secure such that we will persevere because of who God is. But there's a second thing that we see here in verse 14b to 15b, and that's this. Revering Christ cures fearing people. Here you'll notice that Peter is taking aim at the fear of man. And he does this by pointing back to Isaiah 
8. What's interesting, this isn't the first time that he's looked at Isaiah 8. So if you're like, I don't even know what happens in Isaiah 8, apparently it was pretty dominant in his mind. He's already spoken of the stones of 1 Peter 2 from Isaiah 8, 14. But here what he does is he actually drops back a verse to verse 13 and quotes that. Now, let me just bring you up to speed. We don't need to turn back to Isaiah 8 right now. But here's what's going on. King Ahaz, he is the king of Judah. He is absolutely terrified of the kings of Aram and Israel who have turned against him and are threatening him. And so in this sphere, uh, we find that this king is looking everywhere for help. He is looking to the king of Assyria, who, by the way, ultimately is a king who wants to destroy everybody, not the greatest person to look to. Uh, And he is fearful and controlled by his fear of these kings. The threat is real. I mean, if Judah is destroyed, the line of David, through whom God promised to bring the Messiah, who would deliver his people and make them great and restore them, would actually end with this man who is in David's line. And so they had to ask, would God's promises die with Ahaz if Ahaz died? King Ahaz is looking everywhere but God for help. And God says in Isaiah 8.13 these words that are quoted in 1 Peter. He says, the Lord Almighty is the one who you are to regard as holy. He is the one that you are to fear. He is the one who you are to dread. Now Peter paraphrases that in our verses here where he identifies Jesus as Lord saying this, Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Now I, I love that of all people in the Bible, Peter says this. Can you think of why? Peter, the expert on fear of cowards. He's the famed zealous disciple who cut off a servant's ear to protect Jesus just hours before denying Jesus three times before a girl and then the rooster crow. Why would Peter say something like this? Well, because he, like Ahaz, suffered from what the Bible calls fear of man. That's why he denied Jesus before this girl. And fear of man, that's just a technical term that we find to describe people treating other people like gods, right? That's what fear of man is. It's people treating other people like gods who control their being, their loves, their desires, their dreams, their thoughts. It's somebody who wraps somebody up and actually directs their lives in a way that they should not. And God's small. And that's what fear of man is. Peter feared Roman and Jewish authorities feared being arrested. He feared the servant girl's opinion of him to the point that he was willing to deny Jesus three times, saying essentially, I do not know the man. That's the testimony of Peter, the apostle. Peter not only denied the man, but he denied the God-man, the only man that he needed to fear and worship and trust and love, and he turned his back on that God-man. I want you just to come in close for just a minute. Justin, come in close. Not fearing man... And setting Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts. It is not two things. It is one thing. See, revering Christ is the only cure for fearing people. If you want to cure yourself of fear that controls you of other people, all kinds of other people, whether it is a a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or a boss or your enemies, what you need is you need to revere Christ more. That's what you do. So both of these things go hand in hand. See, Peter, we find here that he needed to revere Christ more. Revering Christ is the only cure for fearing people. 
But Peter's use of Isaiah here, I think, catch this, it might not be as random as it seems at first blush. Just think about this. I thought a lot about this this week. King Ahaz looked for the earthly king of Assyria to save him from other earthly kings, and that's the fear of man. But Ahaz's fear in Isaiah 8 is coming right on the heels of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 of the king high and lifted up. Are you with me? Do you remember that? Do you remember what happened there? It was in Isaiah 6 that we find Isaiah transported into this vision of the Lord himself. And when he saw the Lord, it says in verses 1 to 3, it was in the year that King Uzziah, that great king, died, as all earthly kings do. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Can you imagine that vision? And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the image that we get of God. Do you see it? Ahaz feared earthly kings because he did not set up the Lord as holy, holy, holy in his heart. And likewise, Peter, the zealous disciple of Jesus, said, I do not know the man because he had yet to see Christ raised from the dead, declaring with all authority in heaven on earth, all of this has been given to me. And then he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father, high above every earthly power. And don't miss this. Great kings and little girls alike will terrorize and control us if we do not revere the Lord Jesus alone as holy, holy, holy in our hearts. That is the most intimate or recesses of who we are. We must see Christ as holy. See, Peter didn't fear little girls anymore. You'll remember the testimony of Peter. How did that great coward go to be a great martyr? It is because he saw Christ as lifted up and having all authority. And it was in that that something changed in Peter that he didn't have to fear little girls anymore because he saw the greatness of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he didn't fear the authorities that came, would later come for him and even the death that they would put him through. He didn't even fear death itself. Why? Because Jesus was humbled to death before being exalted above every power and given a name above every name. As Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 1 Peter 3, 22, we'll see that this section ends with Peter saying this. He speaks of Christ, reminding them of Christ, who has gone into heaven. Did you catch that? Don't miss that. That's where he's going. And is, is at God's right hand, enthroned with angels, authorities, and power in submission to him. This is the great Jesus that Peter saw that changed his life and the way that he viewed others. Not only that, in the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus' greatness even extends into the realm of life and death. We're told in Revelation, as we saw in a class just this last Wednesday, that Jesus himself holds the keys of death. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you have the keys to it, you own it, right? Jesus is here saying, I have the keys to death. I unlock and lock the door. Like, I have the freedom to let out whom I will. God says here that Jesus is sovereign even over death. Do you see that? How do you become someone who is brave for the gospel when you are by nature someone who is a coward? What turns a zealous coward who denies Christ into an unflinching witness even to the point of death? Well, it was seeing Christ dead and then alive and then ascended and seated next to the Father. See, that reorients everything. As you see that more and more, it reorients everything. 
In fact, the more, if you want to change your life, the more that you look to and meditate on and study God's word and, and around God's people and thinking about and learning about the greatness of Christ, everything else changes. The way that you view everyone else changes. No longer are people big and those who you need to go and look to for resources and you're thinking about, I've got something I need to get from them. But instead, you realize the greatness of Christ who gave you everything that's made you an heir of the kingdom so that you are about relationships that are giving and not taking. God changes everything in Christ. Or in our choices, our daily choices. I mean, we're told to eat or drink to the glory of God. Or our relationships, do we understand that those are ultimately about Jesus even more than us? Like if we start to understand that more and more, our lives will change. We will change. There's a third thing that we see here. That's this. Fearing Christ makes us ready to make a lucid defense for our hope. Fearing Christ makes us ready to make a lucid defense for our hope. We see that in verses 15b and 16. Now, I thought about entitling this section, Don't Be a Jerk to Jerks, but I didn't think that was gentle, and so I I changed it to what we have, and I also thought that sounded too negative. But notice what it looks like when Christ is exalted in your heart. I think we get a picture of that. Here's what he says. Peter says that we always need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience. Now, Peter says to always be prepared. Uh, that word really just means to be ready. Always be ready. Ready to make a defense or an apologetic, right? To anyone that asks about your hope. Now, when we read this, I think this assumes a couple of things, doesn't it? Two or three. I mean, first, you'll notice that Peter is speaking to all Christians. So he's saying all Christians are at least in some sense apologists. We are people who need to be ready to give a defense for our hope. That means that every Christian should know enough about the gospel to defend the faith, the basics of the faith. Now, not every Christian is a professional apologist. That's why every member that joins our church, we ask them to explain the gospel to us in 60 seconds or less. It's not a race. It's not a test that you like pass or fail. We think that this is actually basic Christianity, right? You need to basically understand what it is that makes you a Christian, not just for you, but also for others who you will bear testimony of the gospel to. We take the gospel seriously. Of course, I think it also assumes the second and third thing, this verse. I think that it assumes that your life looks different from others, right? If somebody's noticing that you're different and asking you why, it means that there's something different about you than other people that you're around that are not Christians, And a third thing is that you display hopefulness in your life even while suffering. Because did you know what he says? He says they need to ask and you need to be able to explain why you have hope amidst this suffering. They're going to ask. You need to be ready. Which I think assumes that you're kind of like not Eeyore, right? I mean, some of us have a downcast like sort of temperament and like hope is going to look different on different people, right? That fits some people better. That's cool. But I think that regardless of how God's made you, There should be at least over time, maybe longer for some than others, but where people sense that you are a person of hope that is not of this world, that is not tied to your circumstances, that is not tied to your bank account, it's not tied to your relationships with others. Ultimately, it's tied to God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and the way that he makes you different. That's why we ask every person that that joins our church to explain the gospel, and that's why we want to encourage week in and week out us to be a hopeful people. I hope that we as a church are known as a people of hope. But take note, revering Christ 
not only kills fearing others, but it gives birth to hope. Did you hear that? If you fear Christ, it shouldn't make you sad and scared, but it should make you a, a person who is hopeful. A hopeful for the future that he has for you. Hopeful for his present ability to help you. Hope is an eschatological word for Peter. That just means Peter uses hope to speak of the promised coming future for those who are in Christ, the blessed ones. He goes on to say the implication here is that unbelievers will recognize by the way believers respond to difficulties that their hope is in God rather than in their pleasant earthly circumstances. Let me just ask you this morning, real point blank question. Like maybe you're going through some unpleasant circumstances right now. But is there anyone who could look at you in your difficult life right now and say there is a different way that they are thinking about and hoping in this situation than someone who does not have Christ? And if not, this is not meant to make you feel guilty. It's actually to give you hope that Christ wants more for you. He doesn't want you in some closet in the dark in the fetal position when you go through difficult things. He wants you to look to him. And this is an invitation to look to him afresh. You know, we heard this kind of thing at our, our Pulse meeting last week, didn't we? We heard those encouraging testimonies. And she says, you know, something changed. My circumstances did not change. My heart towards God. And that's what God has called us to, is to have hearts that are filled with the exalted Christ. Now, have you noticed sometimes also that apologists, like professional ones that you listen to, sound kind of angry? Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's just me. I listen to this stuff. I'm like, they've got good content. But they sound very angry. And Peter says it shouldn't be that way for Christians. People who are defending the faith should not be an angry people. They should be a, a hopeful people. He says it this way. You're defending the faith and your hope should be done with gentleness and respect. Now, I'm not a fan of this wording because I'm not gentle. No, that's, it's, it's actually, I think, that it's maybe not as clear in the English as it could be. See, that word for respect is actually the same word for fear, uh, phobos. It's the same word that we found in verse 14 where we're told not to fear anyone that might harm you. And here he says, okay, you need to be gentle and fear them. I don't think that's what he's saying. See, I think what he's saying here is that you need to be gentle towards them and have a healthy fear of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's something else that a fear of the Lord does. It's a, I think it's, it's a message here. If we really have experienced the fear of the Lord, it doesn't make us angry and hostile. It actually makes us gentle, it makes us grateful, it makes us hopeful. And brothers, some of us, maybe some of you sisters as well, struggle with hearts that tend to like to win, hearts that tend to like to be right. I don't know anybody like that. But if you're like that, then you know that, that you need to be reminded of this. If it's of the Spirit, it's gentle. It's hopeful. It's not angry and hostile. It gives testimony to the, the gentleness of Jesus Christ and His gentleness towards us. And that's why we have a good conscience. We do what we believe to be good and honorable before Christ, for whom we will give an account. Now, did you catch the purpose of giving a defense for our hope here? He gives us the purpose of it. He says, gentleness describes how we should treat non-Christians as we proclaim Christ. That's how we should do it. And the fear of Christ makes us gentle. But he also says something very interesting at the end there. Did you notice that he says that it, it is for the sake of those who are around us? Now, I just, before I go to this next verse, just want to, or next part of the verse, I just wanted to point out quickly my theology of jerks. I think it's important. You heard that right, my theology of jerks. We all have our moments, trust me. My brothers and sisters have seen me have my moments. But Christians should really never be jerks. No, it's true. I think that's theological. We are all being sanctified, right? In different places, and we want to be patient with one another. 
Sometimes the hardest person to be patient with is the person who is like a little angry and upset and hostile. But not all Christians, not all non-Christians are jerks either. In fact, most I've met are not. Sometimes it's hard when you see non-Christians who are just more gentle than many Christians. Please know that if if that's you, you you know Christians that have been jerks, that they've lived in ways that you're like, that's ugly. Uh, If it's ugly, it's not Jesus. We have Christians who have failed. We have people that have claimed to be Christians that are not Christians. And I just want to say that you need to know that those Christians that have been jerks to you, they're at least not being very good Christians, and at worst, not actually truly fearing Jesus Christ. And know that on the last day, this is important if you're a non-Christian, a jerk Christian is no excuse before Jesus for not seeking peace with God that only his death and resurrection can provide. And I think that's why the rest of verse 16 means. I think this, now come in close, because this verse could sound really ugly if you don't like understand what I think is going on here. Notice that he says at the end of verse 16, you do this, you have this good testimony of the hope within you, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, there is a way to take this. I'm not sure it's right. Some people hold this, that you need to have a really good testimony when people are mean, just deep down in your heart, you need to know one day God's going to get you. Maybe that's right. But the purpose, I think, of our gentle defense, that those, catch this, those who don't respond in faith will be put to shame before Christ on the last day. Now, I know you're saying that doesn't sound gentle, but come in close again. Should we want them to be saved? Absolutely. Peter says as much in 1 Peter 2.12. But there his goal is that our witness will lead to the salvation and rescue of the lost. But here I think is the point, and here's the heart of the point here in this very verse. It's Christian, don't let the incongruity of your life and your words give non-Christians any reason for not believing on the last day. Have you thought about that? Like, maybe we need to be a little bit more concerned about the lives of others than our own like slate of perfectionism, right? We think of doing right so often based on how people view us, but how often do you think about how your life affects the faith of others? Do you ever want anybody to have to go before the throne room of Jesus one day and feel justified for not following him as Savior by mentioning your name? And if that's what a Christian looks like, God, it just wasn't fair. Absolutely not. Now, that's not going to justify that person by any means, but I would never want my life to actually be an excuse even for a moment in the life of another for not putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So let your life add to their guilt for not believing rather than adding to a reason not to believe. And brothers and sisters, never let your life be a reason for someone not to believe. It is a good thing that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and it makes us gentle and kind and hopeful And they can palpably see it, not just in our words and the way that we talk about the gospel, but in the way that we love them and others. Now, I'm not talking about perfection here, but I'm talking about them seeing that we are zealous to do good because Jesus is on the throne. When you suffer, people are watching more closely, and it's an opportunity to leverage the hope of the gospel to the eternal good of others or to crawl back into that dark closet and assume the fetal position. We have that choice. Isn't it so much better to love and to suffer to the glory of God? Let's never allow anyone to use us as an excuse for not becoming to Christ. But there's the last thing that we see here in our text, and that's this. Our sovereign God is at work, even in our suffering. And I wish I had tons of time for this, but I don't. But catch this. This is what he says. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So catch this. God is sovereign even in our sufferings. 
Now, Peter's going to talk more about this later, and we'll hit that later. But for now, Peter sounds so much like Paul in Romans 8, 28, doesn't he? And we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that all things work together for good. Now, here's the real deal of Christianity. We believe happiness and holiness actually go together just like sin and sadness do, right? Happiness and holiness really do go together in the same way that sin and sadness do. Now, here's why that sounds funky to you. It's because Satan's at work, right? And he's constantly trying to flip the script. He's trying to tell us in our hearts that actually sin and happiness go together and sorrow and holiness go together. And so you need to stay away from the holiness stuff or it's going to make you really sad. Well, that's actually the opposite of the way that God created the world. You know, a few years back, we had a a missionary that was staying in our home from Scotland. John, you might remember him, super gentle brother. What I love is that he went back to Scotland with the vision that what the Vincents are like is actually what all Americans are like. So I'm sorry for that. But one of the things I love to do is he's super humble and kind and gracious, super gentle spirit, right? And uh, I love to mess with him about stuff, just acting like things were normal that were not. I know that's bad. I'm being sanctified too, guys. But in the midst of that, He says, hey, I'm kind of hungry. I said, that's great, man. Why don't I make you a sandwich? Uh, How do you like like peanut butter and mayonnaise and pickles? And I've got some hot peppers that sound good. And he just looks at me like, and he's real polite, but he's like, what? Like, how in the world do those things go together? And he says, are you serious? I said, oh yeah, it's the best. And then I asked Jack and Jack's like, oh yeah, it's the best. Because he got it. He wanted to play. And so in the end, we started actually going to make the sandwich. He's like, no, I don't want, I just can't. I just can't. And so We didn't obviously make him the sandwich. But the reason that he looked at us so strange is he was like, man, those things just don't seem like they go together. Like, who puts mayonnaise and peanut butter together? And if you do, like, every man for himself, that's fine. But he thought it was strange. And so, like, in that moment, he was just really confused. And I think that sometimes we get really confused as Christians because the world that we live in about the nature of what it looks like to be happy in Christ doesn't mean that you're always absent of suffering and difficulty and challenges. Like those things actually go together. And Jesus doesn't hide hide that from us. He shows us that what it means to love God, what it means to be happy is to be holy. And there's no way to happiness apart from holiness in Christ. Now, an important note here is that we might not always understand why God has brought suffering our way, but we trust that no suffering goes unnoticed or wasted by God because he is sovereign. God doesn't stand behind good and evil in the same way either though, right? We've talked about it before. There's an asymmetrical way in which God stands behind good and evil. He is sovereign over all things. Job kind of explains this, doesn't he? You remember when Satan comes in and says, like, let me take all this stuff from Job and he'll curse you and die. And God says, no, he's mine. Like, you can bring whatever you want his way. He's, He's not turning. And the rest of the book shows how Satan systematically is allowed to take things away from Job. And God is glorified. And we don't see exactly an actual meaning in the book of Job for like why he has to go through this. But what you do see is, is that God is absolutely sovereign and Satan is on a short leash and that God will be glorified and he never lets Job go. See, God is is sovereign even in suffering, working things out for our good and his purposes. And we trust that the purposes of God are good because God himself is the ground of our hope. And we can trust that God's not a bully because he has entered into our sufferings with us. Jesus Christ died for our sins to bring us peace with God. He was also raised from the dead to demonstrate that he holds the keys to death. He owns it and that he promises us eternal life with new bodies and a new creation, free from sin and sorrow and Satan and death forever. And being united with God forever is a certain reality. That is our ironclad hope. So Jesus, the innocent sufferer, greater than Job, who is in heaven, he is there with our inheritance, daily calling us home. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God 
rest his head at night. Amen? Giving perfect peace where there should be none. That's what God does for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we come before you and we confess, Father, that we all struggle to some degree with the fear of man. And we need more of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we need more of Jesus in our hearts. And so God, this morning we just ask that you would use your word to do more than what we could attribute to any words that have been spoken today. That you would, by the power of your spirit, be transforming and shaping us into new creatures. Creatures that give glory to you, that hope in the darkness, and turn others towards that otherworldly hope. And it's the great name of your son, Jesus, that brings us that hope that we do pray. Amen. Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com.
Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. I'd like to start this program with Romans chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We serve a God who is the author of eternal hope. The Greek noun for hope is elpis which means trust, faith, confident expectation of what is certain and solid assurance. The primary understanding of hope is derived from the Old Testament, where hope is synonymous with trust. To hope in the Lord is to trust in the Lord. Hope also has to do with the unseen and the future. Romans chapter 8 verses 24 and 25 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Hope in this verse describes the happy anticipation of good toward the future. Today's first scripture reading is from Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. The second scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give it to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ. When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. 
I pray that the God of eternal hope will fill us to overflowing with uncontainable joy and perfect peace as we trust in Him. And that the power of the Holy Spirit will continually surround our lives with His superabundance until we radiate with His hope. God, we worship you in awe before your majesty in the beauty of holiness as we put our hope confidently in your compassion and loving kindness. You alone are radiant hope and we trust in you with all our hearts. Your glorious presence strengthens us as we trust we rejoice with an uncontainable joy and perfect peace flowing from your eternal hope. Father, we long to know your truth. We love the light of your word as we meditate and firmly stand on your promises, for they are our hope and confidence. We pray that the eyes of our hearts will be flooded with light by your Holy Spirit until we experience the full revelation, the hope of your calling. Lord, reveal to us the glorious riches you are preparing as our inheritance and let us continually experience the immeasurable greatness of your power made available to us through faith. Then our lives will be living testimonies of your hope and great power as they work through us. We praise you, Lord, for showing us your extravagant mercy. Thank you for saving us and giving us a new life. We are reborn to experience the greatest hope of eternal life and a perfect relationship with you through the mighty power that was released when you were raised from the dead and exalted to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. Lord, you lead us into a place of radical grace where we are able to celebrate the hope of experiencing your glory. We also celebrate in seasons of tribulations, knowing that tribulation will develop in us patient endurance, and patient endurance will refine our character. When our characters are refined, we learn what it means to hope in and anticipate your abundant goodness. Father, we find strength and comfort in your faithfulness, for you empower us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope. Lord, you are the strong and unbreakable anchor of our souls in every season of our lives. We will tell the world about the hope of our salvation and your glorious kingdom. We will honor you and praise your powerful name forever and ever. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. 
men. ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.